you think your fight's with someone else, you think your fight's with the church, you think it's with a family member or a co-worker or whoever, but the truth is that's not what your biggest fight is about. Your biggest fight is against God and you didn't even realize it. This is All Things New with Pastor Barry E. Fields. Isaiah chapter 2 and beginning in verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted above the hills. The nation shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The mountain of the Lord. I've got a thing for mountains. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was in Salt Lake City with the Kentucky Baptist Convention on a mission trip, and while there, got to see the incredible mountains that are out there. Salt Lake is in a valley, and in that valley, surrounded by the edge of the Rocky Mountains, you can see for miles and miles on end, anytime. Put that up. That's the picture of our mission team. You can see the capital in the background. You can see the surrounding valley, 2.4 million people, the most unreached area in the United States right there. 98% of the people do not know of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hundreds of trails on that mountain, hundreds of slopes, and, and they kind of have this, this deception, like they seem like they're closer than they actually are. A couple of months before that, I had the privilege of going to Pine Mountain, if any of you have ever been there in eastern Kentucky. And while there, you can see the, the top of the mountain sticking out. Tyler, go ahead and roll with me. Go to the next one. And in there, you can see the edge of it with the smoke kind of billowing out. Sometimes you can see just a little bit of the, of the snow-capped coverings of it. And then I want you to see what happens in the millennial generation after we saw that mountain. The next thing you do, if you can see me in the corner, is taking a picture of that mountain instead of enjoying the view. Send it to other people. That's the way our generation reacts to things. Maybe you know something a little bit closer to us. The other day, Richard and I were up on Jeffrey's Cliffs, and you can see down into the valley. It's kind of hard to get the perspective, but you can see on and on for, for miles on end there. And there's another shot of that, too, where you can kind of see out over across Hancock County. It's a beautiful area. The Scripture has a lot to say about mountains. You think about Mount Sinai, where the, ark of the, uh, where the, the, the word of the Lord was revealed through the Ten Commandments. You think about Mount Moriah, where it was said that Abraham offered Isaac up as a sacrifice. You think about Mount Tabor, where... Historians have it that possibly a transfiguration occurred. Mount Olivet, where Jesus spent much of his time. The Bible has a lot to say about mountains. And the reason is because mountains were thought to, by the ancients to be dwelling places of the gods. And so Zeus was said to live on Mount Olympus. Baal was said to live on Mount Cassius. 
But for believers, Zion was a different place. Zion represented the temple. Zion was the dwelling place of the living God. And when you went to Zion, you were to receive the word of the Lord. You were to come into the presence of his holiness, where the Bible tells us that the the train of the Lord's robe was there. The incense was there. The altar was there. This was the, the holy place where revelation from God himself would come. The problem was that Israel wasn't seeking the Lord. It was a bad time to be an Israelite. And it's an interesting passage because for 39 chapters, nothing is happening from Isaiah to the people except for condemnation. Chapter 1 has it. Chapter 3 has it. The rest of chapter 2 has it. But in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, there is a glimmer of hope in the middle of this passage. The mountain of the Lord. How do you seek to get to the mountain when you're stuck in the valley? That's where Israel found itself, the valley of the shadow of death, the valley of disappointments, the valley of guilt, the valley of shame, the valley of rebellion and rejection against Almighty God. That's also what it was like to be in the middle of what was known as the Great War, the trenches in World War I. We often forget about that war, even though it's referred to as sometimes the war to end all wars, ahead of World War II, preceded by the Civil War, But in 1914, on Christmas Day, with the English soldiers on one side and the German soldiers on the other, in the midst of that area, there was supposedly a truce call there in what was known as no man's land. Because if you went out in that area, in that valley, you were almost certain not to come back. So no man could go into that area and and live. Well, supposedly, if you read some of the stories, there was a a truce between the the British and the German soldiers for one day at the beginning of Christmas 1914 where nobody would shoot at each other and they would exchange some gifts and sing some songs. Well, I I read about that because you always wonder, is it possible to have peace in the middle of conflict? Is it possible to sense the presence of the Lord when you're not in the mountain but when you're in the valley? And so I read into that. And the truth of the matter is a little bit more complex. The reason that they were able to cross into no man's land on Christmas Day, 1914, was because there were so many wounded on both sides. It was damp, it was cold. In the midst of that night, they began to collect their wounded on either side and their scattered pockets where soldiers who were at one point shooting each other and would be shooting each other again had ceased just for one night because it was Christmas. You hear about these stories sometimes. You hear about the Hatfields and McCoys over in eastern Kentucky going to church on the morning, shooting at each other in the afternoon. You hear about the the Civil War, father fighting against son, brother against brother, but they play baseball beforehand and afterwards. I mean, you just hear about these things. But is it possible to have peace in the midst of strife? Could it be true in the world in which we live that on one day it could happen in a world where death and sorrow abound, where we can't get past warfare, we can't get past strife when we're in the valley, not on the mountain. Is it possible to see the peace of God in the land of the living? This is an odd passage for Isaiah to write these things. If you were positioning Isaiah's fragments of the writing that God gave him, you would not put Isaiah 2, 1 through 5 where it is. You would put it at chapter 40 or later because that's 
the good news for Israel. That's the coming of the Son of Man. That's redemption that's promised. You wouldn't put it here, and yet Isaiah chooses to put it in the middle of what was then the worst period in the history of Israel. He gives them just a glimpse of a ray of hope. N.T. Wright describes it this way, hope being the God-given ability to imagine God's future into the present. Can there be peace in the valley for me? To see God working, to ask him to open my eyes that in this world filled with shadows of darkness, might I see glimpses of light. You see it when children come to the Lord, when they give of themselves. I saw it just a couple of weeks ago when a family who I knew was struggling significantly financially, nevertheless took some Christmas shoe boxes, filled them up and brought them back. You see it. When there's just a, a glimmer of goodness in this world, it's what J.R. Tolkien in his Lord of the Rings, when Sam says to Frodo, there's some good in this world and it's worth fighting for. It's what C.S. Lewis has them say about Aslan in his Chronicles of Narnia when he's not a tame lion, but he is good. The whole underlying purpose of all of that is that we shall one day see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living that in the midst of death and sorrow, you can still have joy. You can have the peace of God. You think about it just for one moment. Some of you say, peace, I'd love for it to be quiet in my house just for a few seconds every day. I got kids screaming, I argue with my, with my spouse, with, with everybody else. The dog is barking outside. I got neighbors that are as noisy as all get out. Somebody was, was beating their car at about five o'clock this morning in my neighborhood. So I, I know what that's like in this world where it's just filled with noise. I've always got to have it in my pocket. I've always got to be talking on my phone. Can I get some peace? Quiet. In a world where eugenics abound, you see Star Wars next month, watch those stormtroopers. They're modeled after Nazis and Nuremberg and Hitler soldiers. You watch the man in the high castle and you see an alternative world where Nazism comes into play and you say, well, I'm glad we've forsaken all that. Oh, no, we haven't. Now you can determine not only the gender of the, of the baby, but you can determine if the baby's going to have diseases. So if the baby has Down syndrome, you can abort the baby before bringing it to life because it's better. So the world says. We got a Supreme Court that will let Charles Manson, serial killer, die last week in his jail cell. They'll let him live while they'll let 53 million unborn babies die. We live in a world where it is possible for Christians to proclaim truth and righteousness until it comes to the altar of political expediency. And then our only line of argument is, well, Herod is better than Satan. we got conflict in our homes. We've forgotten what it means to parent. We try to get our children to like us rather than to teach them how to live. We've forgotten how to do marriage God's way because we're selfish and we don't want to honor the other person. We just want to argue and get our lives fulfilled, so to speak. We don't know how to manage our money, and so we're in more debt than we've ever been. We don't honor the Lord that way. In a world that is filled with conflict and filled with warfare and filled with strife, how do you know the peace of God? Where is that peace on earth? And I would submit to you that maybe the reason we don't always see the peace of God in our lives is because we're looking for it in the wrong places. See, this, this peace isn't something that happens when all is calm in the world. It's not the world's notion of peace. It's not the absence of, uh, of conflict. In fact, the Bible tells us 
the words of Jesus that it comes through the one who is the Prince of Peace. In the midst of conflict, it comes through sorrow and suffering and death. Through the one who tells us that for the persecuted and slain for the righteous sake of his message, we will have peace even when it doesn't look anything like peace. Sometimes peace is when your spouses and your parents or your children don't profess the same faith that you do. They forsake it. Sometimes it's on a foreign mission field when you feel like everyone has abandoned you and you're there on your own. Sometimes it's when you feel like the morals and the values that you stood for all your life are just being forsaken off the cliffs, the coming generation. It's peace, but it's peace in the midst of strife. Peace not yet fully realized. Isaiah talks about this. He says, for every Robert Mugabe, slayer of thousands, for every cowardly act of ISIS, for every declaration of Bashir al-Assad who has murdered hundreds of thousands of his own people in Syria, for every terrorist act of Al-Qaeda, for every Herod who kills the firstborn in Jerusalem, for every Bethlehem, for Nebuchadnezzar who stands up and says he will make it one day on his own. God has a word to them and it's found in Isaiah 2 and 12. It says the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Ladies and gentlemen, there is a day coming when God will put you in your place if you don't first find it on your own. And he'll do it for everybody else in history too. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. Neither shall they study war no more. And the way in which God chooses to do it is not through the sound of a, of a trumpet. It's not through the thunder of a cannon, but he does it through the cry of a baby. Causes kings to seethe with anger. Causes demons to tremble with fear. Because the people who walked in darkness have now seen a great light. They who dwell in the land of shadows upon them, a light has dawned and it is here. But it's not over yet. Yogi Berra used to say, it ain't over till it's over. When it's true in the kingdom of God, we know there's a baby, but he hasn't yet made everything new. So the whole purpose of Advent is waiting on the coming of the Lord. That's where the prophet says, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not nigh. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So ladies and gentlemen, before we sing joy to the world, we first better start singing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, ransom captive Israel. It's that feeling you get when the memories you have seem to be fleeting. That's, that's what he's getting at. Every year we have a tradition of celebrating Thanksgiving in, in Buffalo, not the Buffalo you're thinking about, Buffalo, Kentucky, which is Lincoln's birthplace, LaRue County. My great aunt and uncle live there. We go there every year, and, you know, I, I bet I have heard the same stories probably a thousand times on end. You know, the stories that you hear every time about what happened back in the day, all the people that your relatives think that you know, but you didn't go up around, so you have no idea who they are, so you just kind of nod your head and smile. They were, they were sharing some of those stories, and it just... It just hit me right in the middle of that. I thought, there's a day coming when I'm really going to miss this. And, and it used to be when you'd go to these things, you know, you try to eat and you try to get in, you try to get out as fast as you can. I find myself now just wanting to stick around for a little bit longer. 
not being in a hurry, and then finding that when it happens, it seems like it's over with every year all too soon. He says that longing in your heart for things to stay, that longing for that accomplishment that doesn't last longer than a, than a week or a month or maybe a year, that, that longing to where there's, there's this emptiness in life that I hope that my joys will not be drowned out by sorrows, that the climax of my life won't be met by disappointment. It's that C.S. Lewis describes as the longing that can only be filled by God can only be satisfied by him. And he writes this essay, Learning in Wartime, where he d describes what happens for believers, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. He says, Jesus did not come just to provide an occasion to sing carols, drink toasts, to feast and exchange gifts. He says, we're right to do these things. Even as soldiers die and families grieve because he came. And in his coming, he brought joy and peace, the joy that overcomes our sorrows and the only kind of peace that ultimately matters. It's the peace of which the war, the end of all wars, terrible as they are, is merely one token. It's the peace that means the long war between the heart and its maker is over. It's a peace treaty offered in Bethlehem and signed in blood on Calvary. See, the reason that we're at war with one another is because we're ultimately at war with God. And you think your fight's with someone else, you think your fight's with the church, you think it's with a family member or a co-worker or whoever, but the truth is that's not what your biggest fight is about. Your biggest fight is against God, and you didn't even realize it. You thought when things didn't go your way and you tried to do your own thing and you didn't listen to other people and you rebelled against the law of God, you thought that you would be mad at him, and what you didn't realize was that he was mad at you, that the wrath of God abided on you because you had violated his laws and he had invited you to come to his mountain and be at his temple and learn of his ways and you said I will go and do my own thing I will reject the ways of the Lord and then one day in the middle of all that when you got to your ropes in and you thought you couldn't go on anymore you heard the voice of God through the spirit say why don't you stop fighting against me and why don't you start fighting for me and better than that why don't you let me fight for you and you heard the message of the Lord that he sought you and he bought you with his redeeming blood and when he did that you realized that whatever took place in your life, there was a peace that would not pass away because the God of this universe made it right. And so now he says, you think there's a conflict that won't ever go away? You think there's a problem you can't solve? Oh, it can be made right with God. Nothing is impossible. So we don't let anybody outside of our circle of love because God sent his son on our behalf. Therefore, it's never too late. Peace is an interesting world. We have people in beauty contests every year. They ask, what do you most want in the world? They say world peace. Most of us don't know what that means. Jerusalem, the name for it, Jerusalem, city of peace. It's ironic because how often in Jerusalem has it ever had peace? Patrick Henry said it years ago in his famous address, men may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. And he said, give me liberty or give me death. 
Some of the preachers after the Civil War decided that God had used that war to usher in a new understanding, what they called a, a new enlightenment. They decided that rather than rely on the authority of the Bible and reason and revelation, they would instead give way to experience and feeling. So what was important was not what the Bible said. What was important was how I felt about what the Bible said, because feelings are the ultimate dealers in our world today. And they decided that the world would be a better place, everything would get better, and we were just moving on to the promised land, progress, enlightenment innovation, technology. And then World War I happened. And World War Numeral II happened. And they had to stop talking about that, so they started talking about liberation theology. God can liberate you from your circumstances. They started talking about prosperity gospel. God will make you rich. And one day he'll deal with them too. We decided to have some form of of peace. How can we bring everybody together to get world peace? And so Woodrow Wilson forms the League of Nations. That doesn't work out. So after World War II, we form the United Nations. I was there in New York City the other, uh, a couple of years back. I took a picture of it. It's, it's a gigantic building right there along the, uh, the East River. You can see it here on the screen. And what will happen is all the nations of the world come together in order to promote peace. I may be getting political here, but I don't intend this to be. The, ironically, the United Nations' aim is to keep world peace. It's probably the most ineffective organization around at keeping that peace. But across the street is an inscription that I did not expect, and it comes right from this text. I took a picture of it so you can see it. It says, He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift sword against nation, and neither shall they learn war anymore. Now, isn't that ironic? That the nations that have rejected the gospel, that are trying to find peace, have the answer to peace right across the street. I mean, it's literally right across the street. But they don't look for it. He tells us that this peace only comes through suffering. It only comes as a result of the enmity when God will one day use a human seed to crush the serpent's head and his bruise will, and he will first bruise his heel. That's talking about the punishment of Jesus, taking it on our behalf, breaking his curse, paving the way for the gospel. It's peace, but it doesn't look like that kind of peace. Jesus says, my peace I give unto you, not as the world gives. My favorite poems in the Christmas season is written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. You may have heard of him. Longfellow's famous in, in what he wrote. He had this gift for giving melancholy to whatever he wrote. And so one of his well-known poems is written up there, O beautiful, awful summer day, what hast thou given, what taken away? You see the beard on Longfellow? He didn't have a beard younger in his life. The reason he grew that beard is because in Christmas Day of 1863, or rather, excuse me, in Christmas of a couple of years before, there was a fire in his house. And Longfellow went in to try to save his wife who was inside the house. He couldn't get to her, but he wouldn't give up. And so the entire side of his face was tinged and burned. And so he grew that beard out to cover his scars. His son was a victim of the Civil War. And so Longfellow knew what it meant to experience tragedy. And one day in Christmas 1863, he heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat, 
peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And he began to think about his circumstances and, and, and where he was. And he, he wrote that next verse, which says, And in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong, mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Melancholy comes in. Longfellow said he, he looked out and noticed some other things that were, were taking place. He said, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. A voice, a chime, a chant sublime. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Longfellow believed at the end of his life that he would look out and see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Didn't mean there wouldn't be suffering. Didn't mean there wouldn't be strife. Didn't mean that conflict wouldn't threaten to tear his beloved country and his family apart. But he believed that God would work all things together for good. That there was a day coming when war would be no more. What about in your life? What are the conflicts that you just can't seem to get over? Maybe it's a family member that you saw this weekend and you're dreading having to see them again in less than a month. Maybe it's who you have to go home to. Maybe it's on the other end where you've lost somebody and you just don't feel the peace that you once had. Maybe everywhere you go, what you once held dear has just been taken away. You can't control your circumstances, but brother and sister, you can control your relationship with God. You can go to Him. And the truth of the matter is, you won't know peace until you know the one who is the Prince of Peace. Until you lean on him, say, God, all my cares I give to you. Because one day I will be on that mountain of the Lord. And when he's there, I will dwell in his presence forever. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the broadcast. If you found it helpful, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. For more information, check us out online at barryefields.com.